Good morning, and welcome to Lesson 9, Do's and Don'ts. If the screen is following me, you'll see a picture of Sarah Palin and her left hand. And the reason I included that was because as I looked at these verses, it, it, it just reminded me of those, of those short notes that she had in her hand when she wanted to remember a, a few points. And in reality, that's sort of what our text looks like. I don't know what yours does, but mine, the way my, the editors of the New American Standard version did it, it, it looks more like a grocery list, short and, and very concise and, and, uh, and so it, it, it sort of reminded me of, uh, of her way of keeping notes. I looked for, but could not find, uh, a Greek manuscript where you could actually see toward the end of the manuscript that the writing got smaller and smaller, and, and I couldn't find one. So I, I was thinking you could probably visualize either a birthday card or a Christmas card where somebody has written something at the bottom and then they run out of space and then they run up the side and they run down this side and they sort of squeeze everything in. You know, in New Testament days, when manuscripts had various links, you know, and they were pretty expensive things to, to, to deal with, you know, when you got down toward the end and you had some things you had to finish up, actually, you would shrink things up. I don't think that that uh, Paul was short of vellum here. I, I think that probably he has purposed the brevity of, of his uh, remarks for other reasons, and we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But let's have some, make some observations about this text as, as we approach it this morning. He, in this list, gives just a short uh, list of, of dues in verses 16 through 18, and then sort of don'ts in verses 19 through uh, 22. Not really any elaboration of how that should be done um, or any great expansion on it and, and only one explanation really as to why it should be done and we'll talk about that in, in a second. I, truthfully, I really agonized over this because I, I, I almost went with a message on verses 16 through 18 only. And the reason is when you look at prayer and thanksgiving and rejoicing, you could really do a sermon on each of those. And, and then I began to agonize because if Paul chose to be brief in the way he did it, I wasn't really sure it was fair to, to launch out into something in, in depth uh, when he chose not to. I wasn't sure I was in the spirit of what Paul was doing, and so I, I went back to the original text that I had selected. You'll notice that these are commands, they're imperatives, and so Paul is not giving us a list of suggestions, he is giving us a list of things that we must do or must not do. And this is a very important observation. These are commands that are given to the church. They are given to the church corporately. Now, I, I say that because the, the text is, is speaking in, 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 uh, in plural, by the use of plurals. And if you look at this, for instance, in the context, greet one another with a holy kiss, you don't do that by yourself. You do that as the church gathers. Let this epistle be read in the hearing of all. So you have the sense, and I think most of the commentators would, would agree, that you have the sense that this is about how the church conducts itself corporately. Now, in our culture, we are so individualistic that, that we read this, pray without ceasing, and, and without even giving it a moment's thought, we go on to say to ourselves, how do I do that? How do I do that? And we've automatically shifted into individual gear, so to speak, rather than reading this in its collective sense. And so I think I need to make that observation so we, we read our text and seek to understand it in its corporate aspects. That's not to deny that there are individual elements of application. It is simply that the primary focus is on the corporate gathering of the church. And I believe that it is primarily related to the church as it gathers for worship. 
I also believe that verse 18, the last part of verse 18, really applies to all of verses 16 through 18, when he says, for this is God's will for you uh, in Christ Jesus. I believe that underscores why we should rejoice, why we should pray, and why we should give thanks, because these, wherever we are, circumstantially, this is the will of God uh, for us, and that has some implications we can talk about. If you want to look at it this way, verses 16 through 18 uh, are sort of output. That is, this is the way the church ought to be expressing its worship toward God, whereas verses 19 through 22 are more input, how they respond to revelation uh, in, in relationship to uh, prophecies. And you can see some other uh, contrasts, uh, I think, between those two sections as well. Now, let's think about the context of, of, the, of the passage that we're dealing with. I think, number one, we, we all ought to recognize, especially if we're looking down at our Bibles, that we're almost at the end of 1 Thessalonians, right? We're in chapter 5, and that must say to us, Paul is getting into his conclusion. This is a part of the conclusion of what Paul has been saying throughout the whole epistle. So what has gone before this? Well, you certainly have a description of Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. You certainly have a description of how the Thessalonians have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the concerns that Paul has expressed is his concern for them in his absence. He's described that while he's attempted on various occasions to come and to be with them, to teach, minister to them, that Satan has hindered him. And so in his absence, he sent Timothy. And Timothy would bring back, as he did, a report of how things were going. And because of that good report, uh, Paul expresses his great joy and rejoicing at hearing that the Thessalonians are doing well. He then speaks to them about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He clarifies that those who die before the Lord returns will not in some way be left out or be in second uh, place, but they will be raised to life and they will be raised to be joined with our Lord Jesus forever and with the saints as well. And then he speaks about recognizing leadership and exercising leadership in the church. And then we come to our text as to behavior. Now, here's the way I see this. Paul is concerned that the church has designated leadership, especially as difficult days come upon that church. And we know they, they experience the gospel in the midst of tribulation. And we know that that's going to come in greater uh, measure. So he wants there to be designated leadership. But he also wants it be, to be clear that there are certain goals and priorities that the church ought to be aiming for. Not just its leaders, but leaders and all of the members. And remember, we talked about Paul pushing leadership down, as it were, so that leadership is not just the responsibility of elders or elders and deacons, but individuals have leadership functions and responsibilities as well. So these are the goals, these are the things the church ought to be about. Their leaders ought to be pursuing it and the congregation ought to be pursuing it uh, as well. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to the first uh, instructions, commands to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And as I mentioned, verse 18, the last half of that, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That really underscores why we can rejoice always, why we can unceasingly be engaged in prayer, and why we can constantly be in a mood and an exercise of thanksgiving. It is the recognition that God is in control. Now, he's talked about the will of God with respect to our sanctification in chapter 4 and how that related to sexual relationships. Now he's talking about the will of God as it relates to all of our life. There are times that, that are obviously not happy times. Is that not right? 
But if you know that God is in control, that these circumstances have been measured out to you by God, then you can rejoice, not because of the adversity, but because you know who it is who has brought uh, that adversity into your life and that it is for a good and just purpose. Well, what is uh, rejoicing? It's not just being happy. (laughs) It's not just feeling joyful. It is the expression of joy, and I would say it is the expression of joy in God through Christ. It is our satisfaction in him. I know that sounds like John Piper, but he doesn't own this truth. But we, when we rejoice, we are rejoicing in God and in his work, in his love, in his grace. So this is our expression of that. It's somewhat like uh, husbands love your wives. Every moment of your life isn't one of those warm, fuzzy, emotional moments, but you do so because you, you acknowledge what God is doing and how God has brought your wife into your life and what she means and what your love for her ought to look like. What is the basis for rejoicing? You won't find all of this in our text, but I would suggest to you that I think one of the purposes that Paul had for writing 1 Thessalonians was to give them fuel for rejoicing. In other words, when he comes to the conclusion and he calls for us to rejoice, if you read through this whole epistle, you will say, Paul was jubilant and rejoicing. The Thessalonians were rejoicing. And as we read about them, we ought to rejoice as well. So a lot of it comes from the text itself. But in the text, we see what God has done for us in the past. We rejoice in the salvation, in the way God has brought salvation and redemption to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. They rejoiced in, in, Paul rejoiced in the way in which the gospel came to the Thessalonians, the conduct of Paul, the ministry of the Spirit, the way in which they received the gospel in the midst of tribulation and trial. And then there is rejoicing in knowing what God will do in the future. I was thinking about that text in Hebrews where it talks about our Lord, who for the joy set before him. So there is a sense in the, in the life of our Lord where he is rejoicing not in the particulars of the moment as much as in where those will lead in terms of the purposes of, of God. And, and that's why I think there's so much emphasis on the future. The reality is that Christians are going to have tribulation in this life. So if you are looking to this life only for your joy, then you're missing the point. We ought to be enjoying life as God gives it to us but recognizing that this life he gives us is headed for a great, a greater and perfect joy and rejoicing in heaven. In a sense, heaven is just endless rejoicing, is it not? Heaven's doing these things that Paul commands the church to do now. Thirdly, seeing God's hand in the present. And I think you see that. Paul recognizing the way in which God not only has saved the saints at Thessalonica, but the way in which he is working in their lives, and probably particularly the way he is working in their lives in his absence. When he can't be there, he recognizes God's care for his church, and he rejoices at what God is doing. And, of course, he rejoices in what God is doing in his life, as we should as well in the present. Knowing God's character, there's a good thing to have for the basis of your rejoicing as we come to know God more fully. And often it is through the difficulties of life that we begin to really touch on those areas, then uh, we, we come to have more fuel for rejoicing. And I put sovereignty in there simply because that would be one example. But remember, Paul starts out in Thessalonians talking about knowing your election. He ends Thessalonians uh, in verses 23, uh, with, uh, as he's ending Thessalonians in verses 23 and 24, he prays that God himself, the God of peace, will sanctify them. He knows it is God who started it. It is God who will finish it. And therefore, 
that gives him great grounds for rejoicing because God is sovereign. There is, especially in Philippians uh, chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 1, in the midst of difficulties, we can rejoice in those because there is a way in which we enter in a, in a deeper way into our identification with Christ. So remember Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And, and also then he says in chapter 3, when he suffers, he enters into the sufferings of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, he says the same thing. So that there is a sense in which when Paul suffered, he felt a greater identification with Christ and his suffering through that experience. That is grounds for rejoicing. And if we run out of fuel, just look at the example of Jesus, Paul, and the apostles and all kinds of people in the New Testament, not to mention the saints around us today. I want you to think just for a minute about the implications, and this is not in our text, but it's related. The implications of rejoicing toward God. What does it say about God if we as a church do not rejoice? Suppose that unbelievers uh, were to come and, and, and were to, to, uh, to, to sit through our service and to watch what we did. And supposing they saw a glum, uh, sort of Eeyore kind of, 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 of get. I say that because I've read this stuff to my grandkids so many times I can know it by heart. But, you know, this is, oh me, oh my. This is just always looking at the sour side of life. What does it say about God? Now, I was thinking about that in light of Nehemiah chapter 2. Remember, Nehemiah had gotten word about how badly things were going back in the promised land. And Nehemiah was the wine bearer, the, the, the cup bearer for the king. And when he heard how bad things were, he said, I'd never been sad in the presence of the king, but here he is. He can't be anything but sad. And the king says to him, how come you're sad? And Nehemiah said, I was scared to death. That's a little paraphrase, but he was scared. Why? Because nobody dared to be sad in the presence of the king. You had court jesters. They'd make you laugh. But you didn't have court mourners in the sense that made it sad because the appearance would be that the king was not satisfying and fulfilling his responsibilities. And so Nehemiah understood one who is in the presence of the king ought to be joyful in the presence of the king. And I'm simply saying, if we're not joyful in the presence of our Savior, then we're reflecting on him. And that's not a good thing to be doing if we're doing it badly. Toward Satan, uh, and I was thinking about Job 1 and 2. Job's perception was that the only, to the only reason why people worship and rejoice in God is... Because God's slipping them benefits under the table. They're happy as clams because he's bribing them. Job's, uh, Satan says to God, take away the goodies. Take away the peace, the prosperity, all of those good things. He'll curse you. And God took that on. And the book of Job is about the fact that God is worthy to be worshipped. Whether he pours out the ease and blessings that we would like or not. And toward unbelievers. Acts chapter 16. I can't help but think of that text. Here's Paul and Silas. They've been beaten. They've been thrown into the prison. They're obviously in great pain, and yet they're singing and they're praising God. And it says, and the prisoners were listening. I don't think they'd have been paying much attention if they were singing, you know, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But when they heard these men praising God for the privilege of knowing him and serving him, that's the time you want to say, what must I do to be saved? So there are some motivations perhaps for us. Let's talk about unceasing uh, prayer. And again, I want to urge you to think about that corporately. Yes, there is a sense in which we individually ought to be talking with God all the time. And I, I don't know whether you do that or not. And I think there are some people that make me a little nervous 
when they're talking to you and, and then they're talking to the Lord and sometimes you're not sure who they're talking to. That makes me a little itchy. But, but the reality is, as we live out our lives, we ought to live out our lives in communion with Him and therefore we ought to be in constant communication. But that's not what this verse is primarily pointing to. It's talking about the church being constantly in prayer. And, and it seems to me that, that one of the ways in which that works, for instance, is when we come together, when we gather together, and, and there are uh, testimonies shared or things, that, that, that the appropriate response in almost every, every situation is prayer. Somebody in our, and I'm, I'm speaking now positively of this, but, you know, Bob and Heather announced that they're going to be moving away and going uh, uh, working somewhere else then our response ought to be prayer prayer for God to provide for a church to provide friends to provide opportunities for ministry somebody uh, shares a sickness we ought to pray somebody shares a testimony of somebody coming to faith as someone did last Sunday and 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 we we praise God for that prayer ought to be something that is a habitual practice and, and, and I not necessarily constant in the sense that you have an uninterrupted stream of it but that it is a way of life for us and, and I'm, I'm grateful that in our church that is very often the case the need for prayer you could talk about but the bottom line is if it all depends upon God if it starts with him first Thessalonians chapter 1 and it ends with him 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or you could sum them all up in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, what God started, he's going to finish, then everything really relies upon God. Who else would we be talking to other than God about accomplishing impossible things, salvation of the lost, sanctification of people who were steeped in, in immorality and heathenism and idol worship and whatever. How else would people change if God were not the prime mover in all of that? And that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 uh, through 25, Paul talks about God bringing about their sanctification and urging them, notice in verse 25, to pray for them uh, as, as well. I was thinking about Acts chapter 6 and verse 4. And there you have the, the instance where the apostles had gotten pretty absorbed in the, the issue of the care and feeding of widows. And, and the apostles said, we need to select very spiritual men to oversee this matter. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and the apostles understood very well that it wasn't just hot dog preaching that saved it was God. There's a song. I love the Gaither stuff, but there's a song, you know. I'll catch him. He'll clean him. You know, God's this big fisherman thing. He's going out, and I'm going to go catch him, and God's going to clean him up. He's going to catch him, and he's going to clean him. And uh, that means we better be praying to him. And when you're preaching the word of God, you realize, apart from God, illuminating, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, opening people's eyes to the truth of his word, nothing's going to change. They're not going to understand. Their eyes are going to be closed unless God enlightens. And that's, that's for what we, which we pray. Then I just mentioned the relationship of prayer and uh, to rejoicing and thanksgiving. These three are very much interrelated. Prayer is the mechanism by which we can praise and rejoice uh, God. It's not the only one. We can sing and, and testify and whatever, but it's one mechanism. It's certainly the mechanism by which we can express our thanksgiving to God. And very often you'll find Paul thanking God in his prayers. By the way, I, I, I'm going back about uh, constant fellowship with God and, and, and in communion with God. Paul, I'm reminded of that when Paul, especially in Ephesians, when he's talking along and all of a sudden he just goes into this prayer. You notice that? He's writing along and all of a sudden he just off in a prayer. Now, that kind of stuff I can get, I can get onto because I understand. He's now talking to God. It's more important than talking to me. And by the way, he's talking to God about me. So I really like that. Paul's a great example. Giving thanks uh, in every circumstance. Now, 
Some would say uh, that it's in every circumstance, but not for every circumstance. Not in this text. In Ephesians chapter 5, it's giving thanks for all things. And, and therefore, you can't duck it. Now, obviously, we don't thank God for the evil that people do because it's evil. We do thank God because God uses even that to bring about his purposes. And so no matter what it is that we find ourselves in, if God causes all things to work together for our good and for his glory, then we can give thanks for all things. And all things are certainly not necessarily all things desirable or all things pleasant. And that's rooted in the sovereignty of God. What's interesting about Job, the book of Job is, he never, so far as we understand it, he never was told the reason for his affliction. But what settled it for Job was finally coming to terms with the fact that God was sovereign. You remember, God says finally, he gets so tired of all this baloney that's been going on. He's, hold on, this is a paraphrase, Texas. Hold on there, partner. I got a few things to say to you. When, uh, when I hung the, the universe out there, were you standing there telling me which way to put it? You know, and, and, and the bottom line is, he's saying to Job, I'm God. You're man. I'm sovereign. You're not. And Job says, well, shut my mouth. Doesn't he? He does. And all, he, all he's left with is the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. And that's all he needs. And certainly... Uh, that's a basis for our giving thanks as well. Then think about the promises of God, in particular the promises of God for the future. But as Psalm 73, as Asaph says in Psalm 73, you are with me and you will be with me forever. So all of the future promises, which are emphatic in First Thessalonians, give us great grounds for thanksgiving. And then our identification with Christ. Uh, I, I've mentioned that before, but Colossians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 3, Paul senses a deeper entering into uh, his fellowship with Christ through those things like suffering. Now, the thing I want to point out about those verses as, as, a, as a cluster of verses is it's all God-centered. If you look at those verses, and these are the things that ought to prioritize the activity, the attitudes of the church when they gather, then what that says to me is what we do ought to be God-centered. When we pray, what we are saying to God is we are needy people. We need forgiveness. We need grace. We need your supply of provision. We need you to bring lost sinners to faith when we witness to the gospel. You need to open doors for us. We need you. Thanksgiving says it was you that was at work here and here and here. So it's God-centered. All of that, I think, rejoicing is looking at what God is doing in the midst of all these things. So I simply say to you, 16 through 18 is saying, when the church gathers, God ought to be in view. God ought to be the focus. And we ought to come away from a service saying, who was the star of the show today? And it ought to be God. It ought always to be God. Okay, unceasing prayer. Now about prophecy. One, I am not going to get into the debate which currently rages uh, about prophecy and whether it's for today, other than to say this. I'm willing to let God give any gift at any time he wants. I am unwilling to redefine that gift to anything other than what scripture calls it. And, and, and when it comes to prophecy today, it better be Deuteronomy 13. It better be Deuteronomy 18. Don't tell me it's some new form that hasn't been described and defined in Scripture. All right, that said, my grumpiness out of the way. We can move on. Let's look at the, uh, at the setting. This is early in the history of the New Testament church. Remember, this is the second missionary journey. 
You don't have all of the epistles written. In fact, what he'll say is make sure everybody gets this thing. It's read amongst all the brethren. So you had epistles that were being written and would be circulated about. But people didn't turn in their New Testaments to, uh, to Philippians or Philemon or whatever. They had a limited amount of revelation. They, of course, had the Old Testament scriptures, not as readily as we do, but they were, they were there and some were familiar with them. And, and so there was a, a time when prophecy and revelation could be understood as more needed. In fact, you remember, it was uh, the decision of the Jerusalem Council when it was sent forth. It was sent forth with a couple of prophets to, in a sense, verify and validate uh, that. So this was a day in which there were prophets. This is also a time when Paul can't be with the Thessalonians. So if Paul were the only source of revelation, that is, of instruction from God then obviously they're going to be pretty limited. So there must have been those who would supply that. There had to have been prophets or Paul wouldn't have said, don't despise it, right, uh, in, in the church. Secondly, this is, I think, important to me, there was open worship in the church like we read of in 1 Corinthians 14 and like we try to do here in our worship meeting. If there was not an open worship time, then you wouldn't have anything to worry about, would you? And, and in, many, in many instances, the way in which people deal with the possibility for trouble is to limit the options, to limit who can speak. When you have an open meeting, then you have the opportunity for people to say anything. And you have to come to terms with that. One way is don't let them do it. And the other way is... To, uh, to, to, to have a way of dealing with it. I, I think I told you this story, but years ago at Believer's Chapel, one of the elders was sitting in the back. Uh, and, and at that time, the meeting of the church was observed on Sunday night. And uh, he was sitting there quietly by himself, very thoughtful. And I said, you're agonizing about what happens if somebody gets up and speaks in tongues, aren't you? <laughs> he says, I am, I am. <laughs> Well, the reality is that when you have an open meeting, you open yourself up to things that can be said. That's one of the price tags. And, and I'm saying, Paul wouldn't be saying what he's saying here if people didn't have the opportunity to speak. And, and when you read in 1 Corinthians 14 and the church gathers and it says, you know, if, if two or three or no more than three can prophesy or speak in tongues, if, if, if one is speaking and another one gets up, then you yield the floor. Did you notice? Uh, John Marr said, I see uh, Don Glenn sitting over here. He knew Don was kind of next in line. And so John sort of shortened it up a bit. That's the kind of interaction that takes place in an open meeting, and I am, I am all for it, and I believe Paul assumed it. Paul, therefore, assumed there would be error. He assumed there would be error that would find its way into the church. Now, not just from some traveling uh, uh, preacher that drops in from, from nowhere. That was a danger. But remember in uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul says, there will rise up even from among you, the Ephesian elders, people who begin to want to have a following after themselves, and they'll speak things that are not true. Paul understood error was coming into the church. And so this text is one that addresses the possibility of that error and how it ought to be dealt with. What he says is, don't resist the Spirit's ministry by despising prophetic revelation. So it's kind of a parallelism, but he's not just saying, don't, don't uh, resist the Spirit's ministry and don't despise prophetic revelation. He's saying, if you despise prophetic revelation, you are, in a sense, seeking to suppress the ministry of the Spirit in that body. And that's one of the ways, again, that you can control things is to suppress freedom. But if the Spirit resides in every believer, and if the meeting of the church is a place where men exercise those gifts verbally and publicly, then obviously 
you've got the opportunity for, for potential problems. So he's saying, in dealing with that, in effect, paraphrase, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everybody who says, the Lord told me. He may have. He may not have. Now, it's interesting to me that he doesn't give the tests, but we could probably run through a few, could we not? Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13 and 18. If it doesn't happen, (laughs) it wasn't true, right? And by the way, I would say this. If it doesn't happen once, I don't think you said to the prophet, uh, you want to go for two out of three? You know, basically, God said it. They say it, and they're false. Goodbye. Um, and it's, it says, if that person prophesies and it does come to pass, but that prompts him to lead people away from following God alone, then if it leads away from from exalting and following God, and we could say in the New Testament sense maybe, of exalting Christ. If it's not Christ-centered, if it's not Christ-exalting, then it's wrong. No matter what kind of razzle-dazzle goes with it, it's wrong. Uh, You've got things like 1 John, if anybody denies the humanity and the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that's false. Um, so we've got various things. If it denies, I'll log Galatians. If anyone comes to you with a gospel other than what I preached, let him be accursed. And then he says it a second time. If it denies or distorts the gospel, then it's false. So we have a number of benchmarks with which to judge prophecy. He does not emphasize that. What he does say is, don't believe everything you hear. Now here's where I differ a little bit with with uh, some understanding of of, uh, the translation of the scripture. But I'm not alone in this, I might add. He says, uh, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but examine all things. Hold fast to what is good. I think I would put a semicolon there rather than a period. By the way, you know that the Greek text didn't have those or not have them and verse numbers and all that. And then it says, stay away from every form of evil. The root, the root of that word is, is like this. If you examine what has been said and it proves to be true, then grab hold of it. And that same root is now used differently. And it's, it now says, if it isn't true, then, then push it away, as it were. And, and so he's playing off of that same word. And therefore, I don't think he's switching subjects when he says, stay away from every form of evil. Now, I believe that that general application may be true. Obviously, Christians ought to stay away from anything that smells of evil. I think what he's saying is this. I think he's saying, when people claim to speak for the Lord, and and now I'm speaking more generally, not just people who say, God's given me a special revelation that isn't in the Bible, but people who say, God's told me this is what the Bible says. We are to examine that. This is cute. He is encouraging the Thessalonians to be more Berean. Isn't he? He's encouraging the Thessalonians to be more Berean, to examine what is said and taught, and cling to what is true, and what is not true to abhor. And I think it's really saying... And by the way, therefore, false teaching is evil. If he's saying avoid all forms of evil, what he's saying is avoid falsehood, which is evil. And by the way, falsehood that is taught comes in a variety of forms and packages. So what he's saying then is, in the light of God speaking and teaching and leading the church, individual believers have a responsibility to discern truth. Now, that's really important. Do the elders have a role to play? You bet they do. But what Paul is saying is, don't pass off all the responsibility of discerning truth to the elders. I'll believe what I believe what the elders say. No, you need to you need to look and discern the truth and if Acts 20 is correct and some elders may go astray, you may have to correct them with what is true. So discard anything that is less 
than true. Everything that doesn't pass the sniff test, I think you ought to stay a mile away from, is, is what Paul is saying there. Now, let's draw a few things together in conclusion if we can. I think this text is another text that instructs us about how the New Testament church should function. I really don't understand how people can look to this text and understand it if they see it in some kind of top-down, centralized uh, leadership where you've got a very closely structured and protected and guarded uh, um, teaching. And, And I'm not saying we're careless about it, but I'm saying, once again, in an open meeting, friends, you don't have a list of approved people Uh, you opened the door. So this is assuming a meeting that is like what we see in 1 Corinthians 14. It is like what we are trying to do here. And I just believe it's another illustration that what we are seeking to do is what Paul assumes the church ought to do. Paul expects open worship to produce some error. But what he doesn't do is to seek to deal with the possibility of error by a scripted worship. I I don't want to be overly critical uh, at this point, but I I have been in other places where literally from from the starting gun of the worship to the ending of the, the final flag of it, every word is scripted. And you know exactly what's going to happen, who's going to do it, when it's going to happen, it's just scripted. Now, I'm talking about evangelical churches. Some may think that's the way to do it. I personally do not. I don't see how it squares with Scripture. I don't see how you have the freedom for people to exercise their gifts in the midst of the body and, and, and for the possibility that God may actually say something significant to us through somebody we didn't expect Him to say it through. Now, that, that's my personal conviction. But therefore, I, I have problems, for example, with scripted worship, where one worship leader basically instructs everybody how it's going to go and where you're going to do it. That's fine, and, and I'll understand. You won't have pauses like we do. You won't have some uh, a stumbling here and there as we do. But I'll go for our system any day of the week, and I think that's the system that Paul expects us to employ. What do we make of Paul's brevity? I would say that I learned from Paul's brevity in dealing with these things where he doesn't go into detail. I would say that Paul is leaving room for variety, for cultural diversity, for all kinds of things. Now remember, I have a conviction and I believe it's biblical. Any truth that is true in Scripture is true anywhere in the world, any time. There, there are not truths that are, that are right for this period of time. That's why I get off the train when somebody says, well, what Paul was saying to the Corinthians, that, that was for them and their day, and, and that doesn't have anything to do with us. Any truth of Scripture is always true, and it's always true everywhere. And that's why when it comes to how the church recognizes leaders, as to how the church goes about its, its worship and, and, and it Uh, it, It rejoices and it prays and it gives thanksgiving. I think that there may be diversity in all that. And the brevity of Paul on that point leaves it open. But what we do know is here is the core of what ought to happen. And so whether you go to church here or in Ethiopia or whatever, you ought to say, they did it. They did it. Or they didn't, uh, based upon what Paul has given us in his instructions. Paul places leadership responsibility on all believers. One of the things that I've I've been most distressed with over my life is when there's some margin call, so to speak, some marginal issue, and people will come to me and they'll think, well, if Bob passes on it, it's okay, and if he vetoes it, I'll find somebody else that'll pass on it. But but they're putting me in the spot of, of choosing, as it were, for them, not, I'm not talking about what's clearly Scripture and what's clearly not Scripture. I'm, I'm saying when people are just seeking to sort of get insight in, in some of these fuzzier areas, it seems to me that my job is to tell people, 
God left that to you. Now, I can lay down the biblical parameters. I can talk about the principles involved. But God calls upon you to make some of these decisions. And and it isn't just always looking to leaders to make those decisions for you. And, of course, that is true with respect to the teaching that takes place in the church and whether or not it's actually true. We then individually and corporately are responsible to discern error. Now, having put in one, in some measure this off uh, on, on everybody, what I am not saying is something postmodern. Every one of you must listen and every one of you must measure this truth according to what you view as true. Uh-uh. We're talking about everyone is responsible to come to the standard of truth, which is God's word, and to listen to any claim to be true in light of that word and discern, is it true to God's word? Isn't that what the Reformation was about? Is it God's word? And everybody ought to be responsible to be making those decisions, not just the few. Let me just say a word about how we view dealing with error in the church meeting at CBC. I'm, I think I'm speaking for the elders, but let's just put it in the category of this is my opinion uh, and how I see it, and that way I won't get anybody else uh, on the same boat with me if they don't want to be. There are things that will be said in the church meeting that are not quite on the mark. There are obviously slips of the tongue that I or anybody else may make, and I think we ought to be careful not to get paranoid about that. Somebody may get up, for example, and they may pray for the wine before they pray for the bread. I'm not going to lose a whole lot of sleep about that. And generally in the process of doing it, somebody says, to them, wait a minute, hey, a minute, what am I doing here? And, and it gets straightened out. Anything that is not crucial to the gospel, I would say, uh, we may deal with privately, we may deal with afterwards, and in some instances it may get dealt with in the context of the meeting, and as long as that's not combative, or, or in a debative mode, sometimes the most beautiful way that things are worked out is when somebody else in the body says, you know, I think we need to put that kind of in perspective. And they lay something out over there. And I love to sit back as an elder and watch God work through others who aren't necessarily elders to, in a sense, make things right that weren't quite that way. There are times when you just can't let it pass. I remember one time years ago at Believer's Chapel and somebody had gotten up and basically said in a, in a worship meeting, if you're here as an unbeliever, you shouldn't be. This is a meeting for believers and not unbelievers. And I remember one of the dear elders at Believer's Chapel got up and he said, you know, I, I, I'm going to have to say something because that's not the position of the elders. And my fear is somebody here may leave this room thinking by our silence that we endorse that view. And because it's so important, I'm going to say to you, it's not. And, and he very graciously dealt with it. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a horrible event. But there are times when leadership has to draw a line and just say, we can't let people leave with this false idea. But, but our idea is, if you're going to have... My idea, at least, is when, when you're going to have a meeting where you're encouraging men to participate, you don't slap them down every time they don't do it perfectly, or you'll have nobody standing on their feet. And, and so we're trying to balance that, 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 that openness and welcoming and encouraging mode so that more will participate and grow in their participation and yet also have some kind of outside lines where if it must be, then uh, something will be said on the spot or shortly thereafter. Implications for our worship. These are benchmarks, I think, for, for our worship. And, you know, I always, when I come and, I, and I'm going to preach at, at 11 o'clock, I always say to myself, I wonder how the meeting's going to go this morning. And, and the Lord often, most often, I would say, pleases me in the way things go. But I, would you not say with me this morning, there was rejoicing, there was prayer, and it was thanksgiving. Hey, 
We're on the mark, folks. <laughs> That's good stuff. And the beauty of it is we didn't have a, a, a flashing note up there that said rejoice time, you know, and, and, and Thanksgiving time and have a certain number of minutes allocated to it. The Spirit of God worked through people in this body to carry those things out. And, and the, this scripture becomes a kind of benchmark to say, were we on the mark this morning or not? Eh, we never do it perfectly, but earth is preparation for heaven. So we're just kind of working at it. And it seems to me that it went exceedingly well. I guess I have to say to you, I love the meeting of the church. I love the meeting of the church. And I think that the health of the church is probably best indicated in that meeting better than anywhere else it's where we really see who we are and what we're about and I pray that God continues to give us grace and growth in the way in which we worship Father we thank you for your word thank you for the opportunity you give to us every week to gather together not only without fear of persecution or imprisonment but with, uh, with an openness that encourages men to step forward in leadership, encourages all saints to listen discerningly to see whether these things are true and which gives us the opportunity to focus on you. May we in our worship be more characterized as a church by our rejoicing, by our prayers, and by our thanksgiving. If there's someone here, Father, who has not trusted in the Lord Jesus, may they see in us the joy that we have in knowing our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life reserved for us, and that you have manifest your presence to us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.